there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 31, Literally Hitler. Well, it's finally time to introduce our primary antagonist into the narrative. I've been dancing around and, I think, really doing a good job of not bringing him up too terribly much, which is deliberate as I didn't want to obsess over one man. Unfortunately, there is a reason why so much of the history is dominated by Adolf Hitler and that is because he drove so many of the terrible events that will unfold on this show. I've been covering events elsewhere in the world and before he took power so much in order to give some context that he and the Nazis did not exist in a vacuum, and that the world was much bigger than that. But the dodging is over, and here is his miniseries. I say his very loosely. The first two episodes in this series will be Hitler's early life, while the following episodes will both continue his biography and be a history of the early Nazi party itself. Which is appropriate, as once he became a demagogue, that completely dominated his life, and the man and party become nearly impossible to disassociate. As I mentioned last week, this series will run to about the end of 1929 and the start of the Depression. The reason I separated these episodes from the first part of the German ones is because Hitler and the Nazis don't play a huge part in the national history, being too small and insignificant. But I didn't want to cover them concurrently to their rise after the Depression, as it is so quick, stopping to backtrack will kill a lot of narrative momentum. This is also going to really outstrip my Mussolini biography, as historians have obsessed over every detail of Hitler's life to an extent that's kind of creepy. Once upon a time, the study of history rested upon the great men. The Alexanders, the Caesars, the Bonapartes, and what have you. That understandably fell out of fashion, being replaced by a broader picture approach to history that overall paints a much more accurate picture. Bigger trends like social movements, environmental factors, and the interplay between political factions has, rightfully, become the primary lens in which to view past events. This is kind of a special case, though. This is an instance where there was certainly a broader social movement that was ripe for the taking, and eventually an economic disaster that created the space to let it in. All that being said, the eventual frenzy of violence could not have taken off and gone on for as long without Adolf Hitler. Some quick spoilers for upcoming episodes. Germany will rearm and launch a fresh bid to dominate Europe. But without Hitler, the numerous gambles which led to the numerous victories, which led to the escalation of the conflict, which in turn allowed cataclysms like the Holocaust and the slaughters on the Eastern Front, would not have happened. And when it all turned around on him, a normal man would have cashed out and tried to make a break for it, like the Kaiser did. But Hitler didn't. He remained until a minute before midnight, which might sound heroic if you ignore the giant funeral pyre that his thousand-year Reich became, what with all the men and women dying for literally nothing. Alright, so, Hitler is important. You get it. I'll admit, I feel like this introduction is kind of perfunctory. Warlord, mass murderer, all-around crazy person, you most likely already know him, at least in passing. He's remembered in the popular history as all these things and more. And like any good amateur historian, I'm going to muddle the waters and try to bring the story back down to earth. Not to try to make you sympathize with him, that'd be gross, but rather to illustrate that while he was unique, Hitler was also very human, and that it was a long road to become what we know him as. And to borrow a phrase from my gigantic bag of clichés, 
he was not born a monster, although he was always kind of a little dick. Now, once upon a time in Habsburg, Austria, there was a man named Alois Schickelgruber. He was born way back in 1837 with no named father. Alois's mother, Maria Anna, eventually married a miller named Johann George Heidler. She died five years into the marriage, and Alois was quickly taken in by his stepdad's brother, Johann Nepomuk Heidler, to live on their family farm. Yeah, they were two brothers with the same first name. Alois was initially trained as a cobbler, and eventually set out to Vienna, the imperial capital, to get a more extensive education in leatherworking. Except that line of work wasn't to be. Sadly, we don't have a biography on Alois's thrilling life, but he set out at 13 as an apprentice cobbler, and by 18 he wound up working in the Ministry of Finance. Not anything important, mind you, but given that the capital had a tendency to draw talent in from across the empire, and that he had no specialized education to his advantage, it was nothing to sneer at. He became a committed civil servant, and by 1875 was a customs supervisor in the small town of Braunau am Inn, north of Salzburg and along the border with the neighboring German Empire. A year later, Alois decided to make a change to his life. He arranged a group of three witnesses, including his step-uncle Nepomuk, who was very proud of his surrogate son's rise, to speak on his behalf before a notary, and had his official father changed from blank to Johann George. A local parish priest completed the task the next day, making George the official dad of Alois Schickelgruber. The official documents were notable, though, in that they did not reference Heidler as the last name. Instead, the new man became Alois Hitler. This event wasn't anything special, just a man of a formerly lower class hoping to secure his legitimacy. Really quite humdrum. And again, in retrospect, Adolf Schickelgruber really doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? And to produce that young Adolf, it takes two to tango, and so there was one Clara Polzl. Clara was actually a second cousin of Alois, if you were to assume that Johann George was in fact the actual dad, and at 16 she went to work as a maid in Alois's home. It was 1876 by this time, so he was a Hitler by then. Alois was also married to his first wife at the time, and that relationship was breaking down. Alois had married one Anna Glossel, who left him and acquired a legal separation in 1880 due to Alois having an affair with another woman, Fanny Matzelberger. Alois shacked up with Fanny soon after, but because his separation from wife number one was just that, a separation and not a formal divorce, this relationship wasn't legitimate, and neither was Fanny's son, Alois Jr., born in 1882. Conveniently, Anna passed away in 1883, which allowed for Alois Sr. to marry Fanny, which allowed Alois Jr. to take the name Hitler. Good for him, I guess. Fanny had one more daughter, Angela, before succumbing to tuberculosis in 1884. She was only 23 years old, and Alois couldn't be without a wife, and so turned to his maid, Clara. I'm actually misstating things a little bit. Fanny wasn't actually dead before Alois started putting the moves on Clara. I don't presume to speak to a 140-year-old domestic drama situation, but good God, Lois was every bit the horn dog his most famous son wasn't. Clara would give birth to three Hitlers at first Gustav, Ida, and Otto. Otto died days after being born. Gustav and Ida both died around the Christmas New Year season in 1887 to 1888. 
each was only a couple of years old. So Clara had lost three kids so far. But Alois was a voracious man, and by mid-1888, Clara was pregnant again. On April 20th, 1889, Adolf Hitler was born. He survived, obviously, which was the first annoyingly good bit of luck he enjoyed over the course of his life. He would be joined by a brother, Edmund, in 1894, but he died in 1900 when Adolf was only seven. A sister, Paula, would be with him for the rest of his life, however distantly for most of it. For her family, he would have Paula and his older half-sister, Angela. Alois Jr. would leave the house in a huff in 1896 and lead the life of a vagabond. He'll pop into Adolf's life once or twice in the future, but not often, and only to try to mooch off his half-brother's success. Family records are scarce, but Alois Sr. was eventually promoted and started working on the German side of the border, in the Bavarian city of Passau, a ways to the north of Braunau am Inn. His family was situated on the Austrian side of the Danube, where they led a fairly comfortable middle-class life. Alois bought a plot of land and set up some beehives as a hobby, which he used to distract himself from the family life that he obviously did not enjoy. That, and he also went down to the local beer hall to dodge his fatherly duties. Clara, his wife, would refer to him as uncle, which speaks volumes to the relationship. He was distant, he was imperious, he was abusive. Yeah, he was a bad dad. For Clara's part, she naturally turned to her two children after so many tragedies in trying to rear a family, especially her son Adolf. There would arise a good cop, abusive cop dynamic between the two parents. Clara would be close to her son and comfort him in the trying times, while Lois would impose his sense of strict discipline. Adolf, being as stubborn as his father, would butt heads with his dad, which would then lead to a beating. Humdrum for the time, but it explains a lot. The Hitlers, as a whole, were also on the move. Between 1892 and 1898, the family would move four times, with Lois moving separately and being away from the house for a solid year, which was probably one of the most liberating times for the young Adolf. At nine and a half, Adolf and his family settled into a suburb outside the city of Linz in 1898. For two years, he led a happy life, enjoying the provincial atmosphere of a city both large, but not too large. The stories around him went that he would establish himself as a kind of ringleader among the local kids, although that mostly meant he forced everyone to play out the cowboys and Indian stories he passionately loved. He also developed a fixation on war, especially after reading some historical articles on the German triumphs in the Franco-Prussian War. Even at a young age, and despite living in a separate empire, he started to think of himself as a German, which, given that he wasn't even a teenager yet, might not seem significant, what with, you know, just kid playing games. Well, but we all know how that ended up for him. These games were likely a pleasant escape for him, though, as his world came under new pressures as he got older. With the death of his little brother Edmund in 1900, and his older half-brother Alois Jr. splitting out, he became the only son in the house. And Alois Sr. pushed for him to enter secondary school with the expectation of being a civil servant. Just like his old man, a prospect that was terrifying to the youngster. Adolf also faced new challenges outside his home. His education up to this point had been non-demanding and also situated close by to his home. Now, he became enrolled in a higher curriculum, one that was in the city proper. At that time, he was in the burbs, but back then, there weren't cars to shuttle him, so he had to hoof it. 
which meant walking an hour both ways to and from school. I'm sure he had to suffer the classic trudging through a snowstorm to get to school. His grade situation was even worse. He had breezed through the village classes, but now when forced to actually apply himself, he couldn't summon the effort to do so. I'm sure we all know the type. Person naturally bright, but unwilling to take the next step and make use of that talent by actually putting in the work. Part of that probably was that the only figure that challenged him was his dad. And then that was in the order-you-about-or-beat-you kind of challenging way. Whatever the case, his grades never really saw improvement during the secondary school years. Hitler himself, both at the time and in his later life, would rail against the memory of his experiences from the school years. He was at his wit's end with his dad as well. All this time, Lois had been pressuring him to enter into the civil service, to secure a middling but stable light in the bureaucracy of the creaking Habsburg Empire. Like any rebellious teenager with no direction, this really freaked young Adolf out and only encouraged him to press back with his own dream, to become an artist. The son could not have picked a more diametrically opposed profession to what the father had intended, and it only deepened the gulf between the two. Alois certainly tried his best to beat the dreams out of his son, but Adolf stubbornly resisted all attempts to sway him from a creative future. Eventually, Adolf's immediate problem solved itself, and on January 3, 1903, Alois Hitler died. Nearly 14, Hitler was now the man of the house. Alois's life as a civil servant had been a drab one, and his personal character wasn't much to speak of, but he did leave his family in decent financial circumstances. As a widow, Clara Hitler still received part of her husband's pension, plus Adolf and his sister would each receive a monthly payout until they were 24. Clara initially tried to steer Adolf towards the civil service as well, seeing it as the safe bet for her beloved son. But I'm going to level with you. Losing multiple children and being married to a domineering and abusive uncle figure might not have left Clara as the most assertive personality in Austria. Adolf basically said no to her wishes and dreamed endlessly about his future as an artist. School only got worse for him. He was threatened with being held back multiple times and only barely scraped by. His mother set up a room for him in town so he wouldn't have to make the long trek to and from school every day, but he remained distant from his schoolmates in this time. He started reaching the end, though, and he was set in the fall of 1905 to take his final examinations. Meanwhile, his mom had sold the family farm and settled for more modest, but still cozy, accommodations within Linz. Hitler rejoined with his mom in the summer of 1905, when on a family vacation, he came down with a lung infection. It was, by his accounts, fairly brutal, and it wasn't until September of that year that he returned to school. He passed a test that qualified him to take his final examinations. But this time, Adolf had other ideas. He appealed to his mom that he was still laid out from his lung infection and could no longer endure the burden of his schoolwork. Now, the modern listener might hear that with some skepticism. Adolf had been struggling to get through secondary school for five years now, even being held back a year early on. Now, if he dropped out, he would have no diploma to show for it. From Adolf's perspective, though, it made sense. He wanted to be an artist. Graduating from secondary school would merely put him on track to more specialized schooling afterwards. Now was the time to seize his own destiny. It was time to move back in with his mom. For the next two years, Adolf would have no job, a monthly disposable income, and no rent or food bill thanks to a loving mother 
who, probably due to her own terrible misfortune in life, couldn't tell her only son no. He didn't really do much. He read, he drew a little. You kind of forget he was trying to become an artist when talking about these years. Because, oh boy, he did not accomplish a damn thing. Well, he did go out and attend the opera in the evenings. And don't chuckle, opera was and is very big in Austria. And back then, it really wasn't a bad way to spend an evening, given the dearth of entertainment options. During one performance in the fall of 1905, Hitler met the one real friend he would have for a very long time. The boy's name was August Kubizek, the son of an upholsterer who was also an aspiring musician. The two hit it off, and soon they began hanging out incessantly, each dreaming of their future artistic triumphs. August was the more verbally um, reserved of the two, which was perfect for Adolf, as it allowed him to talk to someone at length about whatever Grant thought had entered his head on a given day. It was during these one-sided chats that the first glimmers of the Hitler oration started to appear. The opera probably helped, especially when it involved Wagner, which was infamously Adolf's favorite. August recounted that the music would provide fuel for Adolf's rhetorical fire, sometimes driving him to grandiose declarations about his vision of the world that only a 16-year-old wouldn't find embarrassing. These years were kind of a grand illusion for Adolf. He fantasized about the future, about success, about everything. Him and August went in on a lottery ticket once, and he spent most of the day dreaming scenarios of his new life once they had won. They didn't win. He crushed hard on a girl named Stephanie while in Linz and admired her from a distance when the two were both out and about. He wrote poems about her and even admitted his feelings to August. His friend urged him to just go talk to the girl, but Adolf declined. His current employment situation and living in his mom's apartment probably didn't help with his self-esteem on that front. August himself didn't really know the full details of Adolf's circumstances. He himself worked in his dad's workshop during the day and enjoyed his friend's long and inspirational speeches on how everything was going to work out professionally for the both of them in the evenings. And August was kind of a pushover and didn't want to press his buddy to open up too much. Adolf would stay up all night and sleep through the day, something that he would continue to do even as master of Europe. In the spring of 1906, he took a solo trip to sightsee Vienna, still a premier European capital. He was suitably enthralled by the artistic culture there and resolved to return on a more permanent basis. But before he could make this move, his mom developed breast cancer. This was confirmed in January 1907. The local doctor removed one of her breasts, but it was too late and the cancer spread. Clara did not have much time left. Still, Hitler did not relent from his course. He was deeply close to his mother, and certainly was despondent at her prognosis. But if anything, it drove him further into taking a stab at moving to Vienna and attending the art academy there. With the safe nest that his mother offered slipping away, it was now or never. Clara borrowed some money from her sister and bankrolled Adolf's move to the capital in September 1907. August and Clara saw the 18-year-old Adolf off at the Linz train station. At the start of October, he took the entrance exam to the Art Academy. He did not pass. The rector advised him to take up architecture, as he was pretty good at buildings. Too bad about the whole dropout thing in retrospect. As you might imagine, after spending two years conjuring and breathing life into the dream of becoming an accomplished artist, this was quite the body blow. He couldn't even tell his mom or August about his failure. 
so he lied to them and said he had gotten in. He slunk back to Lynn's at the end of the month, where the bad news continued to roll in as his mother entered into her final decline. She died on December 21st, 1907, only 47 years old. You may have heard the stories of Hitler living in poverty and really living rough, and might imagine that they started here, but that isn't quite true. The money left by his mom, when combined with that monthly orphan's pension he got after his dad died, meant he had enough money to get by without doing anything productive for a while longer yet. He lingered around Linz until February 1908, eventually returning to Vienna, this time for good. But before heading off, he managed to convince August to join him moving to the capital. But it wasn't quite the same Hitler as before. His loving mother was gone, leaving only his sisters, whom he was indifferent to. And having been soundly rejected as an artist, his ambition was also thwarted. So while the pair of dreamers were reunited and striking out on their own, for Hitler it was under a deeply different set of circumstances than even a year earlier. He still wanted to be an artist, to be a creative, but there was no path forward for him. He still dreamed, but now it was purely a defense mechanism to the intrusions of a indifferent world that had no time for him. For somebody as high-strung and egotistical as the man Hitler was growing into, this would mean long years of disillusionment for the future. For over five years, Vienna would be Hitler's home. The change of setting is important. Linz was definitely a respectable city, but it was also a purely German one and something of a backwater. One of those cities that still managed to feel like a small town, that sort of thing. Very homogenous community, mostly respectable. Vienna was leagues different. It was the capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, a nation of 11 official languages. The city was the nerve center of a multicultural enterprise that Hitler, even on his visits there, had never been fully exposed to until he actually started living there. And there was a class element, too. Here in the big city, there was an organized workers' movement based around industries that simply weren't present in Hitler's old corner of Austria. And all these groups didn't get along. These were the twilight days of the empire, with many of the various ethnic groups either jockeying for privileges and autonomy or trying to break away altogether. The workers sparred with the upper classes, and while the surface culture was that of imperial conservatism, there was a thriving artistic scene that made it the envy of Europe. Major modern artists and thinkers populated the extensive cafes, while the nobility upheld their traditions of pomp and ceremony. Traditional values and moralism rubbed shoulders with criminality and vice. If Hitler had been ill at ease in his earlier years, transitioning from the village to Linz, this change would be even more affecting. He was, to say the least, a small fish being dumped into an ocean. This was a Vienna also being dominated by one of its more colorful mayors, Karl Luger. And by colorful, I mean he stirred up anti-Semitic sentiments to score an electoral advantage. There has been some debate about the actual extent of Luger's anti-Semitism, with some historians suggesting his full-throated attacks on Jews as threats to society merely being electoral tricks to draw in voters, which, oddly enough, is sometimes a line of thought attributed to Hitler as well. In any case, he talked like an anti-Semite, and he acted like an anti-Semite, so we'll just call him an anti-Semite. He denounced the Jewish race for all the ills of the respectable voters of the city, using them as a rallying cry in order to head off the more class-based critique of the socialists. And it worked. He was wildly popular among the city's population and remained mayor until he died in 1910. He admittedly took no direct action against Jews in his time in office, 
which fueled the aforementioned not-really-racist arguments. But boy, he kept the city riled up, and the Jews of the city had to be careful to stay on his good side. Luger's politics didn't really align with what Hitler's eventually morphed into. He was more of a traditionalist, and hardly a proto-fascist beyond othering the Jewish population in order to exploit resentments. But he did have a flair for the dramatic when giving a speech. His ability to work a crowd was unmatched. And he brought the art of propaganda and mass mobilization among voters to the imperial city. So while he wasn't quite a proto-fascist, he was remarkably close to a proto-Hitler. There was one other politician, a Georg von Schonerer, whom Hitler also admired and drew influence from. I'll be much shorter with this fellow, as he had a number of limitations to said influence. The biggest draw he had on the young Hitler was his pan-German philosophy. Schonerer did not take Austria being cut out of the German unification well, and forcefully pushed purely German interests over all other nationalities in the empire. He went so far as to suggest giving autonomy to most of the empire, while merging Austria and Bohemia, a.k.a the Czech part, into the larger German nation. Schonerer was successful for some time in the late 1800s, but by 1907 was politically on the way out. He had embraced anti-Semitism, because of course, but even that did not keep him going. He had relied too much on smaller, more elite political circles to sustain his movement, which was a lesson for Hitler, and he embraced Mayor Luger's more successful populist approach instead. Then, of course, you had the socialists in the city, too. Hitler instinctively hated this group, as it rejected the nationalism and militarism that so animated him. That being said, he did pay attention to its outreach to the workers and how the group found success by, you know, directly engaging with the problems common people were suffering through. So yeah, this was a whole new world for the young provincial, and next week I'll be picking up with his life in the city. His hostility for finding a job won't serve him in good stead, and if you've heard him be described as a tramp from Vienna, well, these will be the years that he earns that description. Tune in then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.